Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smezer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Paseo Podcast at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you want to keep up with us, if you want to follow me, I am at JS Leon on Twitter. You can also pitch a story or volunteer with the podcast by reaching out to us on our website, baseomedia.org. We have a YouTube channel, too, where you can watch the interview portion of our episodes. Just type in Baseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. And while you're there, like our videos and subscribe to our channel, of course. Really um, need your help. Help us get to 100 subscribers, por favor. For this week's episode, we have two returning guests to the podcast. Today, we welcome back Illinois State Senator Cristina Pasiones-Zayas and Managing Director of Corps Member Leadership at Teach for America, Jason Donez. We're going to discuss the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards that Illinois state lawmakers recently adopted, which will elevate the training teachers receive statewide to better meet the needs of students. In our discussion with Cristina and Jason, we're going to delve deeper into what these standards are, how they were developed, what these standards mean for Puerto Rican and the wider BIPOC student population, and address some of the criticism lawmakers and right-wing organizations have charged against these standards in their attempt to get them blocked from adoption in the lead-up to their adoption vote. As you can imagine, with two guests on the show today, this is a longer episode. I stated before on the show that we try to keep these to about... 35, 45 minutes. Uh, that's definitely not the case this time around, but Cristina and Jason had so many great points that I want to make sure you have a chance to hear them all. So with that said, I'm going to bypass the Puerto Rican news portion of today's episode, and we're going to just get right into things. We're going to jump right into the interview, but don't worry, I'll have a lot to share in next week's episode. Here's our interview with Illinois State Senator Cristina Pasiones-Zayas and Managing Director of Corps Member Leadership at Teach for America, Jason Donez, on the recently adopted culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. Bienvenidos a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. It is February 19th, but that doesn't really matter because it's a podcast. So if you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, we really appreciate you being here, watching us, listening to us wherever, whenever you are. We have a couple of special guests today. No strangers to the Paseo Podcast. We have with us Illinois State Senator Cristina Pasiones-Zayas and Managing Director of Core Member Leadership for Teach for America, Jason Donas. Uh, Cristina, Jason, how are you today? Welcome to the Paseo Podcast. Super excited to be here. How are you? Living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, Same. Excited to be here. 
Super happy to have you both on. For people listening, um, we're not going to do the deep dive into who these two guests are. If you want, listen back to, to previous episodes. We actually had Cristina on uh, to talk about her work in early childhood education at the Erickson Institute. Obviously, by the way, I introduced her on this podcast. A lot has changed since then. Uh, so we'll go into her new title and her new role. Um, Jason's last episode, uh, was much less, very different circumstances, much, yeah, much (laughs) less serious than what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we were talking about Jennifer Lopez's performance at the Super Bowl. So uh, (laughs) important in different ways, in different ways. Amen. Amen. So a little bit, yeah, a little bit of a 180. Um, (laughs) But uh, today, uh, we're actually going to talk about the cultural, culturally responsive teaching and leading standards that the Illinois State Board of Education is trying to adopt statewide. Um, there's been a little bit of quote-unquote controversy. There was an attempt by the uh, GOP here at the state level to block those standards from being adopted. Luckily, that was not the case. Christina and Jason um, have, have both have a close understanding um, and have worked in some capacity with uh, the development um, and uh, review of these standards. So really excited to take the deep dive on these standards with you both today. Uh, But before we get into the nitty gritty of all that, uh, would just love for either of you, again, people can listen to old episodes uh, to learn more about you, but um, State Senator, why don't we start with you? Uh, What should our audience know about you? Um, well, I am 60 days into this position, um, representing the 20th legislative district, uh, which comprises um, eight communities on the northwest side. So Albany Park, Avondale, Belmont Cragen, Humble Park, Edmosa, uh, uh, Logan Square, Old Irving, and Portage Park. Um, very diverse uh community uh, majority Latino, but we also have a sizable Polish, Asian, Native American, Middle Eastern um, populations, and I'm really excited to transform and kind of translate my experiences and skills in this particular position. I've done a lot of work, obviously, on the ground and community and organizing and education And um, I'm looking to really take those experiences and open up avenues for the government to really be of the people, by the people, um, and and center our lived experiences in the policies that we make. Jason, what should our audience know about you? Also, uh, after you give your intro, can you also talk a little bit about uh, Teach for America for anybody listening that's not familiar with the organization? For sure. So... Yes, my name is Jason Donas. I am a Chicago native, Humble Park native. I'm still here living on the boulevard, living it up. Um, I am. I currently serve as the managing director of core member leadership um, at an organization called Teach for America. Um, I'll, I'll come back to like kind of who we are in a second, but um, yeah, I, I was also a member of the task force that was brought together by ISB to draft these standards. So a collection of educators and stakeholders um, who, including students, which I don't think everyone really knows, but uh, who came together to just offer up the wealth of knowledge we have gathered over the past, uh, over the course of our careers and uh, kind of 
determine what's next for education in our state um, by way of being culturally responsive. <clears throat> why, why was I part of that? So I'm a culturally responsive teaching specialist. It's kind of uh, since I entered the nonprofit world, since I was teaching, it was kind of the thing that really invited me into the profession. And so I hope to just bring, bring whatever expertise I can offer and, and, and dive into this uh, with you all today. Um, Teach of America is a, is a national organization, a nonprofit uh, uh, leadership development organization. Um, our, our primary battleground, so to speak, our primary like lane of influence and change is education. And so we uh, gather at different regions throughout the nation. Um, traditionally young people, though people of all types, uh, a diverse core of leaders who are just ready to make a difference and are realizing for a variety of reasons that education is the pathway to doing that. And so we, we bring them in, we train and develop them uh, to be uh, hopefully excellent novice educators um, and uh, equally important, make sure that they're committed to this movement long-term. So whether they stay in the classroom, which about half of our people do, or they transition to different roles in the movement, different ways to contribute that they fundamentally care about equity, justice um, in, in education. So that's a little bit about us. I work in the teacher development sphere, um, but that's kind of the lens I'm bringing today. Really excited to, to dive into the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. But I realized the last time we had you both on, we did not ask this question. And we started asking this question to all of our guests um, when we came back from break over the summer. I'm just curious to hear from both of y'all. State Senator, let's start with you. What part of Puerto Rico is your family from? Um, my father is from Cuamo, which is kind of South Central-ish, um, you know, uh, not far off from Ponce. Um, and uh, my husband's family, because I got a claim as well, hmm. um, he, he we've got the whole island covered. Um, his family is from Umacao. And his father's from Umacao and his mom is from Añasco. So we've got East Coast, West Coast. You do got the island covered. Got it. <laughs> My gosh, that's awesome. Jason, uh, what about your roots on the island? Where's your Where's your family from? Yes, yeah, San Lorenzo is the, the town our family hails from. Uh, it's kind of centrally located. Um, if you're going from San Juan to Ponce, you run into kind of a beautiful mountain region and small town. Um, home to one of my favorite, unexpectedly, donuts in the world. It was actually was at this random shop. So, yeah, San Lorenzo is the place my family's from. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a Puerto Rican donut. I mean, I guess at a panaderia, but I don't think I've ever had a donut from Puerto Rico. There's Rico's. one in that hometown that... Okay, shoot dang. All right, noted. <laughs> right. Okay, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Write it down. Oh Write gosh. it down. Putting it in the itinerary. <laughs> my goodness. Okay, cool. So let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about these uh, culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. State Senator, can you give us a little breakdown for people just hearing about them for the first time listening to this, or people looking for a bit more understanding of what exactly they are? What are the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards? Okay, so I'm so glad you're starting with that question because if people have been following, you know, the media um, kind of blitz um, against it, there's been a lot of misinformation. And so these are standards 
that are meant to instruct and inform teacher education programs at the university level. So when you have individuals who are pursuing what we call a PEL or a professional educator license, um, the accredited institutions that grant those licenses, um, whether they be through a bachelor's program or a master's program, have to be designed to be aligned with these particular standards. So ge generically, that's what it is. But then the content um, is really what makes it very different and distinct from the past. And you know, as Jason had mentioned, his entree to the field is culturally responsive practice and pedagogy. And that has been um, you know, developed over the course of several decades um, you know, in the field of education under the premise that as educators, one, children and young people don't come to us as blank slates. They come to us with a wealth of assets and experiences. And it's our job as educators to partner with them, their families, their community, to really explore the world together, to co-create knowledge, to affirm identities, to be inclusive, um, to support the, the development of their advocacy, their voice, um, and to be self-reflective as educators in the power dynamics that we um, typically kind of hold and how the, the institution of schooling has been, as well as exploring systems of oppression and what are the ways that we can disrupt and transform that through the educational practice, through the relationships that we hold, through the content that we explore. So I'll stop right there because that's just kind of the overall picture of what these standards are. There was this uh, this this vote to block it with that effort kind of quashed. So they weren't blocked. So they're moving forward. Um, for people that aren't familiar with the legislative process, uh, Senator, if we could st stay with you for a second on this one, what does this mean now? What's the next step for CRTL? Okay, so they're actually um, created through what we call a rulemaking process, right? So there is our school code, which governs all the various aspects of the educational system, right? From learning standards um, to curricula, to um, teacher preparation, to um, teacher evaluation and assessments, right? So if this is the um, teacher preparation arm in the school code, there was a set of directives about, you know, what teacher programs, teacher education programs should have. And what this has done has now shifted that language to reflect um, the process that Jason was a part of over the past two to three years. And so um, how this works is that the State Board of Education convened a task force that Jason participated in along with many educators and experts in the field and students. And um, over the course of you know, their kind of investigation, and actually I think Jason should talk about that a little bit more, I won't, I won't go there, but the point is, is at some point the task force presents um, some recommended changes to the State Board of Education. State Board of Education reviews those changes, perhaps gives some feedback, and then those, um, once the changes have been adopted, the board approves it and it goes to 
JCAR, which is the Joint Committee on Administrative Rulemaking. And so this is a committee that's impaneled by, it's bicameral. So you have um, General Assembly members from the um, House of Representatives, General Assembly members from the Senate. It's also bipartisan. And this is a committee where you have six from each chamber and six from each political party. Um, and so they have they review the rules. There's a public comment period where the public can like weigh in and submit their comments. That gets reviewed. It gets it may alter some of the language, but ultimately in the end, it is the members of JCAR that vote on this to make the official rule change. And it becomes, if if it's in the language of um, of the rules, it becomes effective immediately, or there might be a little bit of a runway for it to become effective. Okay, super. And just also too, like on a, you know, government education tip, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's legislation, statute, and then there are rules. And usually, you know, rules you have to be kind of careful with because those rules can be changed at a certain point in time. Whereas if you pass it and you you codify it in legislation, that's a much harder process to undo. So sometimes we make policy changes through legislation and sometimes we make it through the rulemaking process. So does that mean if these get through the rulemaking process, there could be the potential for years down the line a new governor in office, a, a different majority in the state Congress, that this these standards could then be altered? That is my understanding. And the reason why I say that is because we just went through the process. There's a kindergarten individual development survey that's administered 40 days after the first day of school for kindergartners. And that was a rulemaking process. But what we did in the lame duck session is we actually codified it in law so that that can't be changed. It is now even protected further. And so I believe that is the case here is that these are just rules at this point. Obviously, they, you know, they have to be implemented. There's an implementation date, so on and so forth. Um, but I believe if we really want to go the step further, we'll want to, you know, go through a legislative process to codify it. And I know this is, this is, things are hard to predict, but in terms of timeline from these standards being officially adopted statewide, what what does that look like? Are we talking about a year till we see that months? And can you give us a sense of time? So frame? if it's if it's a new teacher education program um, that is looking for approval from the State Board of Education, they um, basically as of October twenty October first, twenty twenty one, they'll have to you know present that 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 program under these particular rules. If you're an existing teacher prep program, you have until October 1st, 2025 to be in alignment with these standards. Gotcha. Okay. That's super helpful. Jumping around a little bit here, but Jason, you mentioned in a Sun-Times piece that you recently wrote, and we'll of course put that in the show notes. Everybody can give that a read. And Christina mentioned it earlier too, that you were a member of the network of educators and stakeholders who really came together to draft uh, CRTL standards. Can you give us a little insight? What Walk us through what that process was like from the beginning conversations all the way to the, the final draft. 
Yeah, for sure. It is a long process, as Christian named, like it was it's years in a, in a process um, and a lot of hard work. And I think a thing that got like um, a thing that got like kind of silenced in the story with this misinformation campaign was that uh, just how deliberate that process was, including a diverse set of stakeholders, again, from policymakers in rural communities I know nothing about. Like I learned so much because I'm such a Chicago homebody from rural superintendents, like people I would never get the opportunity to interact with just about how the dynamic racially and culturally is different in like a rural environment um, to, to current educators, to students. Uh, essentially it was, you know, we're, 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 in, a, we're in a room together um, first building kind of alignment and knowledge like what what are we after like we we all know we have different kind of um uh different access points or or, or levels of expertise all of these levels were, were high but like kind of different entry points to this work um what are we after together um and what do we what contextually do we need to understand about this mission so it was a lot of first just rallying around what we're after um while simultaneously getting to know each other better, right? Because the, the team that's going to design a standards to be culturally responsive across the state needs to operate in a culturally responsive way. We needed to better understand each other or each other's mission, each other's vision. Um, and so it was kind of like simultaneously like rolling up our sleeves and starting to theorize alongside just kind of like building connections that would have other, otherwise not happened. Um, and we, organized by the ISBE team in support uh, with the support of a um, consultant group in who are experts in the field. Uh, we essentially just were kind of in this constant cycle of build knowledge, set intention, uh, draft up using the, the wealth of knowledge that we have available to us, like the, the set of commitments um, first at like the highest level and then like turn that into teacher level actions and just like go through cycles of drafting. Um, and, and again, a thing that was lost, I think in the, the story is the idea um, that, you know, nothing really reached paper until it had a lot of eyes on it and a lot of expertise and a lot of heart put into it. Um, and this, this like kind of idea that there was some concerted like leftist idea or, or, or like um, scheme to push something forward. I'm going I'm a, I'm to tell you from being a person in the room, I didn't, I didn't experience that. There was no scheme other than trying to better define what school can be in our state, primarily for black and brown students, but also for white rural students who are not necessarily the majority when you think about public school students across the nation to gay students who are who face different levels of um, bias and prejudice in their schools so oftentimes unintentionally right so it was this this to go back to the process like just this constant cycle of just what do we believe needs to be true to make schooling more culture responsive how can we translate that into orientations at a teacher's level, like what someone has to believe about students, actions at a teacher level, like what someone actually brings to a classroom, and then student outcomes, what actually students then demonstrate that showcases their school environment is more culturally responsive. 
Um, and we just got, we just like dug in for months and months and months and months until we uh, essentially, this is the last thing part, part I'll share, we were kind of organizing the sub teams based off of like expertise. So once we kind of got, like we set the stage, we were organized into sub teams around like our lane of just expertise to really define more deeply that one section of the standards together. And then we presented them across sub teams to get ratified. Um, that cyclical process took us to kind of that, that end point where ISBE was like, all right, we're gonna take this to like our drafting team, make it more official, and then start the process of getting this proposed. So yeah, it, it really was, it, it was just like this, the thing I hope people realize is how intentional and collaborative uh, the process was um, because this is serious work. It's not something we're just gonna, you know, half-heartedly put together. One point you mentioned was was really interesting. And just to, to clear up for people listening, you know, if you've read that these standards are some type of left-leaning, um, you know, initiative, propaganda, whatever you want to call it. It was not in a, a progressive Illuminati that was behind this. We are, yeah, we, we are the door. progressive Illuminati. Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't there, there will be people that will take that clip. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Edit so, that out. Edit yeah, that we're out. Cut that. <laughs> um, but uh, shifting gears a little bit, just thinking about the collaborative nature uh, of making sure these standards get to where they are today. State Senator, you had actually written in the Chicago Tribune that you were the secretary of the Illinois State Board of Education at the time when the CRTL standards were adopted by the Illinois State Board of Education. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight into what that uh, ISB adoption process was like? You know, what, what was kind of the criteria the board uh, was looking for um, when adopting these standards? So, you know, the the start of the process predated my time um, on the board because the, the task force was formed in 2018. It predated actually, I want to say, almost everyone on the board, including the superintendent, except for one person. There was one holdover um, from the previous administration. And so um, we were brought up to speed on this a couple months before we actually adopted them. Um, there was a presentation made to the board um, and, and how just again, a little bit of education on process, right? So before every single board meeting, we get a board packet, um, but there's also a couple of committees that meet prior to the full board meeting. One of those committees is the policy, the educational policy planning committee. And usually a lot of the substantive information that ends up getting on the agenda for the full board meeting kind of gets vetted through that subcommittee, right? And so that committee got a chance to kind of have a little bit of a discussion of these um, rules or these standards that were being developed before we had like a, or I think we had a full presentation and then there was like the public comment period. And it was interesting because we had some members that happened to populate that um, subcommittee that were raising the, the very critiques that a lot of the opposition was raising. Uh, a lot of this language around, you know, is this, is this political? Um, this is going too far. Um, what is really the intent? And um, 
you know, it was, I kind of, I would listen in on those meetings because I wasn't a member of that committee and I could speak if I wanted to, but I thought it was interesting just to kind of like let that conversation ride. And the reason why is because I had always, since I was day one on the board, disrupting, you know, really presenting in some ways radically different perspectives than what most people around that table were comfortable with um, or, you know, versed in. And so um, it was the first time I started to hear those kinds of rumblings. So when we had the full presentation, um, the some members of the committee were present, um, as well as some of the experts um, that were also brought in from um, other institutions and entities that have adopted similar um, standards. And you know, we had a really robust discussion about process, and we also had um, discussion about content. Um, and then we ultimately all voted to approve so that it can go through the JCAR process. Um, and so my understanding is that when um, one of the public comment periods revealed a lot of this opposition, there then started to be a little bit of negotiation with respect to um, some words. And uh, there were two words that were actually changed um, from the original drafting. One of the words was activism, because there's a there's an element in there that talks about supporting student um, feedback and advocacy. So they changed activism to advocacy to kind of quell some of the concerns about what people were um, perceiving as politically charged um, words. The other word that was a big change was progressive to inclusive. And so um, it was interesting because I was actually one of the board members that vocalized that I thought actually they should have kept those words um, because I, I didn't want it to get watered down. I really thought that the intent, again, was to disrupt the manifestation of white supremacy within our educational system and how it shows up over and over and over again in covert and overt ways. And if we really want to address it, you have to be very precise in how you name the solutions and how you name the problems. And so um, I actually was on the record saying like, I was good with progressive and, and activism. Like, I, I don't really have a problem with that. But apparently, you know, some people were very uncomfortable with it and, and it was a constant negotiation. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it sounds a little bit of a uh, splitting hairs um, there. Um, right? No, that's, let's, but also let's like, I mean, let's value this, the spirit of it, right? Like I get, we're in a, we're in like a politicized time. Uh, in many ways, we've never left a politicized time, but it's it's branching into everything, and it's it was sad, it was honestly sad for me to see this get over like over politicized. We're talking about the support of students that we serve, um, and the spirit of some of the the kind of founding thinkers of this field. Uh, one of the themes is that your school should be responsible to. Um, encouraging students to essentially take ownership over their lives and in many ways that's 
there's an activism component. There's, there's change, um, but it's not the change that's defined by the teacher. It's the change that's defined by the student, that the teacher's responsibility is ultimately to give students the space to motive, to yeah, motivate the change that they seek, regardless like what, of, of whatever that is. Um, it could be what we deem really left and progressive. It could be the opposite, um, but it's that they have that power and they've been given that agency. Um, so to see us like to your point, like splitting hairs and fearing the you know spirit of what it means to be culturally responsive, I get it and it's frustrating. Yeah, and if I can add, I mean, I think, you know, in, in my kind of formal education and particularly in the grad experience, um, you know, I was a student of um, uh, critical race theory, you know, 20 years ago. So well before it landed in the former, you know, administration's mouth in that executive order where he literally named it as something that cannot happen in federally funded trainings and programs and so on and so forth. And I think one of the, the biggest things I learned, and this was actually an undergrad, is that it's not about politics. You know, schooling isn't necessarily one, we need to disrupt the notion that schooling is apolitical because it is political. And it's all about whose politics get to prevail. And the way that we have structured our schools and schooling systems in terms of how we have centered white, middle-class, status quo, able-bodied, heteronormative, you know, all of those things, what this does is that decenters it. And it really invites a process of reflection, responsibility, analysis, awareness, and ultimately action. And Paulo Freire is one of the, you know, educational theorists that a lot of folks in this kind of field refer to because he talked about this banking theory. You know, education was always set up in a way where young people and children come to you as empty vessels and it's the teacher's job, this power dynamic to just dump the information in them and their their value as a student their performance as a student is predicated on their ability to regurgitate that information. And that's really, I think, what the standards try to get at is to create the environment and to encourage the dispositions as well as the discomfort of these types of activities and exercises. If we truly want to have an educated you know, society. Looking at how these standards are really putting uh, children first. Jason, you had mentioned how it's not just about BIPOC students, you know, white students are, are, are a part of this as well. And on this podcast, we try to really focus on Puerto Rican stories, if not the wider BIPOC community. Um, so just curious to, to hear from you, you know, and again, I don't want to disregard white students, um, but just focusing on Puerto Rican students, the wider BIPOC student population, what would these standards mean for schools that service these students? Yeah, um, a hell of a lot, I yeah. guess, is the is the answer, right? Like the, you know, I, I, I was a brown student growing up in public schools. And a lot of what I wrote about was just kind of from that experience. And a thing that I don't want to be lost is that this is about achievement. 
this isn't about like just black and brown kids feeling better about themselves. That's not the goal, though. That shouldn't be a problem, too. Right. Like if that was the goal, that's a noble goal. But it's actually about achievement. It's actually a, a researched understanding of what school needs to be to allow black and brown students to that Puerto, that Puerto Rican kid growing up in CPS to achieve more because when he goes to school, he feels whole. When he goes to school, he feels seen. This like the, the idea of like Maslow's needs, like what needs to be true for you as a human before you can even access learning. Uh, that's what being culturally responsive is all about. It's not just this like feel good story. You know, how do we make this nice Disney movie where a class of brown kids feels really celebrated as a class of brown kids? No, it's about achievement. It's about closing the gap and ensuring that school is designed with all students in mind. And so you got me going because the, 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 the misconception is again, that this is just, it's just a political story, that it's just something to transfer our ideologies onto children. And it is, is, is not that. Again, it is about learning and achievement. And I, I promise you from experience, because I felt school was aimless, purposeless, uh, didn't speak to me, I was not ready to achieve and it had nothing to do with my mom who, who would whip me if I didn't focus on school, who instilled in me a, 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 a passion for learning. It had nothing to do with the strength of my teachers. Well, it has something to do with that, but it, it had nothing to do about my own ability. It was entirely about what I viewed school to be and that the disconnect between like, as a kid, not having the words for it, but knowing this is not for me that's a problem and that's essentially the problem that these standards are trying to uh trying to rectify that we are just a little bit more deliberate about the type of school experience that we're presenting primarily to black and brown students state senator same question to you what do these standards mean for schools that service puerto rican students and the wider bipoc student population yeah, I think, um, you know, Jason said it so well. It's about being seen. Um, if you go to just the basic principles of education, children, young people, adults learn in the context of relationships. If you don't have a relationship, learning is not going to take place. And so what these standards attempt to do is to really facilitate a process to have a relationship, to then be able to co-create knowledge, explore the world, analyze the world, and not have to basically subtract your identity, your language, um, anything that makes you you in order to succeed in the academic space. Mm. It's also really to reconcile past harm because in many ways, schools have operated as institutions that have harmed children and young people, and in some cases, families and educators. And so it's really about how do we restore that harm so that we can facilitate 
an educational process and also set up the environment so that learning can ultimately happen. Shifting gears a little bit here, State Senator, what would you say to a critic that is talking to you about these standards and says, you know what, these standards are just filled with left-leaning ideology. It's just the progressive wing of the state trying to push partisan politics in schools. What would you say to someone that, that brings up that criticism to you? I think I would kind of go back to what I was just saying about, you know, fundamentally, and also I think Jason spoke to this well too, about Maslow's hierarchy. You know, you need some essential needs met in order to create the conditions and circumstances for learning. And when we have a system that has been constructed in a way to only see and validate some students at the expense of others, then we are not fulfilling our promise of public education because it is only benefiting a small group of individuals and it can carry a lasting harm through life. I mean, how many people do you know reflect on their times back at school and how painful it was for a variety of reasons? But in some of those reasons, really being anchored in that they did not have meaningful relationships with adults, they did not get their, their lived experience validated in the content that they were looking at. They were never seen as valued or that their background, their history, their people have contributed anything to this society or that if they did, it was always in a position of a lower end of the hierarchy to be exploited and all of that. So I think it's really about how do we this is not about politics. How do we set up schooling? How do we set up education where it's really anchored in humanity and anchored in our shared responsibility, our inter intersectionality, our interdependence, and our um, ability to ultimately lift everyone up, not just those that can meet the, the narrow focus of what schools have historically been. Jason, this next one's for you. There have been critics that have pointed out that these standards are uh, essentially requirements that are imposing an ideological litmus test on educators, uh, making any teacher who does not espouse certain views unwelcome in Illinois schools. Um, that's actually a, a quote from one of these critics. And it's my understanding that there's a teacher shortage in Illinois. According to the Illinois State Board of Education, their recent data shows that there's nearly 4,500 unfilled positions in school districts across the state in as of 2021. So do you think that adding these standards to the training teachers are receiving will, will drive more people away from the profession? I think... I can confidently say it will drive more people towards the profession. And I'll get to that in a second. But the first thing, the first thing I want to acknowledge for just thinking about that quote, I remember it, but thinking about that, that, that concept, whose views will be welcome. I encourage people to dive into the document, to dive into the standards and actually like track for yourself. What are the views or the orientations or the mindsets I would need to have to be in alignment with this document. And I think you'll find out that these views are things that every parent, white, black, brown, or blue, would want their teacher to have of their children. So the idea 
that Christina, you said it perfectly, but like the idea that my, my student isn't an empty vessel and comes in with value. That's a view, yes, we want our teachers to feel. The idea that uh, my students are capable, the idea that my students, regardless of what I've been socialized to believe about the color of their skin, that they're capable of rigorous learning. That is a view that this document, it tries to impose on teachers. And I don't think that's a view we would not want of all teachers, if that makes sense. So I encourage people to actually go through and track like anything you read here, what's the view or, or this, what's the belief I would need to have to be an excellent educator? Because I'm confident you will find that any parent you talk to would want you to have that view, that belief. Um, and so your question around like, how does this intersect with the, with the teacher shortage? You know, we, we have a teacher shortage and then you look at our numbers for BIPOC educators, now that's a, that's a triple shortage. Uh, we are a small minority in this profession. And we're still a state, or we were until recently, a state without culturally responsive teaching standards. How could I encourage another brown person, another Puerto Rican to enter the profession when the profession isn't even prioritizing the things that they care about? And so I actually believe that this is a pathway to pulling more teachers in, more teachers who look like and understand the experience of their of our students, uh, because our students are predominantly black and brown in the public school system. It will draw more educators in and potentially the exact educators we've been alienating because school has not been designed for them. So. I, I understand it, <laughs> you know, I, I do, I understand the fear, um, but you have to see the opportunity here to actually pull more teachers in who are not really willing to explore the idea of joining this profession until it gets itself right. And part of getting itself right is ensuring that it is a culture responsive profession. Um, so I, 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 again, I understand the fears but I actually believe the counter effect will happen. Now, granted, it, if there's a teacher out there who it, is not in it for the right reasons, doesn't believe that black students are capable, is not, does have an inherent bias that they're unwilling to check about Puerto Rican Latino students, then yeah, maybe they don't belong in the profession. And finally, we're making a stake there. But that's such a minority of the people who want to enter this work. A majority of people who want to enter this work want to do something beautiful and wonderful for black and brown students, for all, for all students throughout the state. So I have trouble believing we'd lose a lot of people given what's in this document. And if I can just add, I'd like to really um, dispel this myth about the framing of teacher shortage. Um, there's, a, there's a great article that uses like this metaphor um, and speaks to, you know, uh, just because you can't buy a Ferrari for 98 cents doesn't mean that the Ferraris are, there's a Ferrari shortage. And what that mm -hmm. seeks to kind of explain is that the profession over time has really just been such a very it's, it's become more and more rigid. There have been more and more things put on teachers 
and on their shoulders, accountability measures, quality measures. And it's not to say that those things are bad, but when you do, when you impose those without providing the appropriate support, without providing the appropriate resources and funding to be able to do that work with fidelity, you're then setting teachers up for failure. You're setting teachers or you're setting up a system of exploitation instead of it really being a system that is meant to achieve the outcomes that quality standards are set out to achieve, that accountability measures are set out to monitor. And so I, I think it's really important to call that out. Um, and I don't blame you know, the, the many that have left because of the conditions, the circumstances, because they were not set up to be successful and ultimately achieve what they originally wanted to do by entering the profession. And that is accompanying children and young people on their journey for self-actualization. I love that Ferrari analogy. Um, you take the deep dive in what some of these teachers are expected to do, everything from the level of education they're expected to have and the continued education they need to have in order to make somewhat of a, of a decent living wage on top of um, on top of the class load, uh, the multiple hats that they're expected to have, the, the shortages and budget so they can't even uh, provide the proper supplies to teach their students adequately. We actually had uh, Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez on the show before, and she was talking about when she was teaching there in Puerto Rico, and uh, there was essentially legislation that was closing schools and consolidating classrooms. And she went from having, um, you know, low double digits, like between 10, 20 students to, uh, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but it was a crazy high number. And at that point, you're just expect you're just asking teachers to be babysitters and are students really getting the education that they deserve in the way our education system is currently structured. So you want this profession of being a teacher to be as attractive as possible. And a lot of times, especially what we're seeing, you know, I'm in public relations for people that don't know listening on the show. And, you know, we will always do these brand studies to see what people really value and why someone would want to one support an organization or work for an organization. And one of the biggest things is, you know, does this organization, if I'm going to give my money to it or my time, talent and uh, time and talent to it, does this organization adequately reflect my values? Am I going to be fulfilled working in this profession or for this person or for this company? And our education system is no different. If we want, we want to, we have to instill the right policy in order to attract the right candidates that are going to give, again, give our students the, the education that they deserve. And then this is one hurdle and the number, the plethora of things that need to be addressed in, in our, our education system, not just here in Illinois, but I mean, around the country. This is for both of you. What do you say to, to critics who, who question why these standards around race, gender identity, the role of, uh, and the role of power, privilege, and student advocacy? So what would you say to, to critics who question these standards, including all of that, and why they should be implemented when Illinois students are failing to achieve different competencies in things like reading and math that are already being exacerbated by the pandemic. Is that just a mirage that critics are putting in front of people to kind of uh, distract them from the larger issue? Or is it too much for, for teachers to handle? I think there are two facets to it. And the first is... Um, 
the premise like posits that school isn't already a cultural and racial experience because it is it's just the matter of how deliberate we are about that racial experience black boys for example over are overrepresented in um both behavioral referrals and um in special education a race a race line is the primary predictor of success in so many different aspects of our um of our system and so schools are already racial it's just not in the way that makes that we want it to be that we that in, in a way that makes it deliberate um in a way that makes it affirming um and so this idea of like why are we injecting this thing that has no place in school it's already there it's just the extent to which it is producing greater student achievement or actually more dropouts or behavior issues or whatever right so that's kind of my, my first problem, I guess, is just with the premise. It kind of misses a fundamental understanding of school as a system um, and as, as a system of white dominance. But uh, so there's that piece. And then the second piece, I go back to kind of what we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, how can we do this and uphold like learning standards? We're treating them as mutually exclusive. Um, and that ain't the case again. Uh, this is about one in service of the other. This is not to make school a feel-good environment. Though, again, that should not be a problem. That should not be radical. It is about achievement. It is about ensuring that students can, um, regardless of race, background, income, can achieve at the same clip. And so, again, the, I have a problem with the premise. It's, it's distinguishing the two. We can't do them both. Actually, I'm telling you, research is showing you need one to properly do the other. You need attention to equity, race, bias, and understanding of the way that that plays out in school before you can ever hope to uh, ensure that black and brown students are meeting the standards at the same rate as their white, more affluent peers putting myself into the shoes of someone that is an adult, grown adult in the professional world. We're learning that a lot of companies, a lot of employees are demanding more from their, their the companies that they work for in order to really feel fulfilled in their work. And the data shows that pro productivity does increase. Like your people are happier at their jobs when they, you know, have, access to, to free food. They have access to a nap room, uh, you know, good benefits. Again, this isn't like, uh, this is not an exact comparison, but just thinking about like, if we as adults, if the, the trend is we need more from our companies than just to be put in front of a screen or to be put at a desk and just get to work, th there are so many layers to this. So if we're, if we're feeling this need as adults, imagine our children, what they're going through as they're continuing to develop and not, not only coming into their own identity, but the developments of their mind. State Senator, uh, same question to you. Uh, is this, are these standards uh, too much for teachers to handle? No, I mean, I, I think at least in, in my experience, um, you know, when I was serving on the state board and I was deliberate about engaging with educators on a regular basis. And then of course, all of my professional experience, um, I, I think teachers crave this type of support. 
in, in that it's it's institutional, it's structural. Because too often when you did have educators that decided to kind of buck the system and you know do their own thing, in many ways they would sometimes be rendered as deviant. They would get or, or, or um, subversive or you know get disciplined. Um, and so this actually, I think, offers greater protection. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm reminded of a set of educators who were working in rural Illinois and um, both white and predominantly white institutions. Um, and But they themselves um, really wanted to do the very important work of what the standards were um, trying to get at and did not have the support of administration, began to feel even more marginalized, began to feel like failures um, and that they were doing a disservice for the young people and children that they were teaching and, and started to feel like they needed to get out of the system. So I think, you know, cause I think Jason had said before, it's the converse. I think it'll invite people in because they can then see themselves in the process. They can then see that to be an educator is not to harm children anymore or to make them conform to a particular thought process and structure and way of being. Cause the other piece that I think is incredibly important and it is gonna be some work on the adults is that because we are centering in children and young people, that they come to us full and whole and with a tons of assets and they should have agency and they should have voice and, and, and be able to be a part of decision-making processes. It, it starts to chip away at what schools also reinforce and that is adultism, which is you know a, a frame and a thinking that adults are always right. And that adults should always be in control. And, and it, it's very hierarchical and very much about dominance and domestication. Um, instead of adults being partners in the process of self-determination, self-actualization, self-realization, being accompanying this young person or this child on their human journey. And so I, I really think that it's it's natural, but it is going to require um, some 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 deep self uh, reflection and kind of also releasing because in so many ways we've been socialized to accept the way that it it has been as typical and as normal and especially if we've been able to be successful and we say oh we we stuck it out and we did it well why do we have to live with that kind of trauma and stress why should we be proud of that how about we we set humans up for their best possible life from the beginning <laughs> like i want to be a part of that mm -hmm. i'm so glad you said that you're gonna get me heated here because i have a lot of student uh student loan debt um, and that's like, <laughs> oh, we are, I know, right? Jeez. but that, that's a, that's a common, that's a common thing that comes up in a lot of these debates, just using student loan debt as an example, you know, when we hear about, you know, organizations, politicians pushing for forgiving student debt, and you'll look in the comment sections on, uh, social media, you know, people will say, well, I had to work two jobs and, uh, you know, did this, that, and the other in order to pay off my student debt, everybody else should. Well, who says that's the standard? Why should right. 
why in the heck would you want the generation that comes after you to experience the same hardships as you yourself did? How are you how are you building a better society and a better life for the people that come after us? So I never understand like I never understand people that bring um, you know that counter argument to these types of debates. It just it just feels like well what are you really arguing at this point? Um, let's keep the status quo. Doesn't make sense to me. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, porque when we come back, we're going to ask Cristina and Jason some rapid-fire listener questions. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, Give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's p-a-s-e-o-p-o-d at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. We took the deep dive. We're, we're pretty deep into our conversation here. So I do want to be respectful of both of your times because I know you both got kids and y'all got families. Um, I do not have a kid. I have a dog, though. So it's not close to what y'all experience. But <laughs> I can hear scratching at the door here in the back. Um, I can hear my toddler scratching at the door. So that just puts things into context uh, for you. They'll be coming soon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you two, we have some rapid fire listener questions. I keep bringing this one along because I really like it. Let's start with you, Jason. What is your favorite Puerto Rican restaurant to eat at in Chicago? You literally started with the hardest question. I don't know. I don't know if y'all feel this way, but I feel like different. Puerto Rican restaurants do that one thing really yeah. well. You know yeah. what I mean? Like Ponce's Acapurias. Like I just have yet to see someone beat them. But I'm gonna need like La Plena's like um, Lechon. So Fire. it's you know what I mean? Like it's really hard for me to choose because literally, I kid you not, I have once gone to multiple restaurants to get not. to build my dinner <laughs> i promise you is what i had way too much time it was pre-toddler but i've done that i've been about that life but right now i think uh you know if i had to choose me and my uh wife right now we're just regulars at cafe colau on um in the paseo um little kind of breakfast cafe joint wonderful staff really good food there's nothing like eating a pork sandwich for breakfast so that's gonna have to be my choice <laughs> Uh, right on, right on. They have a really good iced café con leche too, which are hard to find. I haven't found many places that make an iced café con leche. Um, okay, uh, Cristina, 
favorite Puerto Rican restaurant you like to eat at in Chicago? I love La Plana. I mean, yes. La Plana is fire. That's your like abuela in the back right there. Mm-hmm. Cooking it up fresh. I mean, right on the spot. They have an amazing like verdura con bacalao. I'm, I'm a pescatarian. So like I do have a little bit of a limitation with our cuisine. But I mean, if we were on the island, man, I have so many options because you've got amazing mariscos everywhere. But I love um, I love La Plena, especially, too, because I love how the kitchen's open and mm-hmm. you can like, see them cooking right there. Um, it's just awesome. And then also the walls are like a great, you know, journey, educational journey. You know, like when my kids are there, we like look at all the Taino symbols and they've got the map and it's just the whole experience is awesome. And, you know, I think I've got to shout out Nelly's, of course, for the Avena de Coco, which is like fire to the mat um it there's something i mean there's got to be some crack in there i swear <laughs> absolutely pcp <laughs> some one of those i've tried to recreate that of another coco and i fail every time not enough crack impossible yeah of course <laughs> Uh, yeah it is impossible and i've tried to get that recipe out of them like in sneaky ways and they're they have it locked down mm-hmm. um, that's the true goal of this podcast right like you're gonna get big enough where finally they'll give you this recipe. Yeah, we might do an investigative <laughs> report, like a podcast <laughs> there you series. Go. What is behind the Avena de Coco and Ellie's? Um, It'd be like a like a cook off. Like if we had a if we all try to create it and and see who can get to the closest. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea actually. Hmm, okay, I'm writing that one down too. While we're on the topic of food, Jason, this next rapid fire question is for you. Uh, if you had the option to choose one Puerto Rican dish to introduce your son to, what would it be? Well, what's funny is that's probably the first thing I thought about when I knew I was going to be a father. So <laughs> <laughs> like that was it. I was like, not diapers, not you know, the priorities. Type of yeah. <laughs> it was priorities. It's Puerto Rican food. Um, you know, it's um, it's got to be. Arroz con habichuela or uh, arroz con andules, like just the, the, the you know, the, the iconic thing, the thing that uh, screams Puerto Rico because he, you know, he's biracial um, and I really want him to uh, appreciate and value his culture. And one of those things is kind of going to the basics. So definitely some rice and beans, throw some lechon in there and it's game time. Cristina, this next question is for you. Um, this isn't the question, but just a, 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 almost like a little precursor. Um, when is your state senator seat up for re-election? In um, 2022. Okay. Uh, what are your future plans in 2022? I'm going to run. Ah, okay. <laughs> Let's do All it. All right. Okay. Good to hear. <laughs> um, okay, cool. That was a little quick one. Jason, uh, got another question for you here. Recently, you were elected to local school council. If you could sum up your experience running for that seat in five words, what would those five words be? Powerful, home, community, odd, slash virtual, (laughs) Uh, and humble what it was all about for me. Christina, uh, you have to go to Springfield still, right? Even during the pandemic to, to cast votes, correct? 
Well, we have our rules now allow us to do everything remote. Okay. Um, we just um, passed some rules in the lame duck session to allow for virtual remote voting. Hmm. Uh, so I was down there in January, though, um, for the lame duck session. And then um, so far, we haven't had to go back. Um, but there is there is some talk about it is on the schedule. We just haven't received any notice if it's going to get canceled again for March. The first week of March, we're supposed to be back. And did you fly or drive to Springfield? I drove. Um, I I have fl- the only time I flew to Springfield was actually last year this time because I was literally coming from Puerto Rico to do the hurricane work, came back to sleep overnight in Chicago and got up on a plane to go to Springfield to to be at the State Board of Education meeting and fly back because I was like. I am not going to, because I think I did a red eye flight, you know, from, from Puerto Rico. And so I was like, there's no way I'm going to get on the road and drive for three hours in February. When you were traveling to Springfield, uh, what was on your playlist for those three hours? What music were you listening to? Man, I, I wish I had a playlist. I was on the phone the whole time. You know, that that you, you got to put in your calls. Wow. <laughs> I was talking so much that my throat was so dry and like hoarse because it was like three hours straight. You know, there's one thing that you notice in this in this job. I mean, you really you you try to maximize every single minute. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when you have uh, three hours of that time, it's great to do calls Mm -hmm that you can take your time with and not have to, you know, be so transactional or whatever. So I was, the last time I was on the phone all the way there, all the way back, um, just doing the thing. Okay. Okay. I'm not going to lie. I was hoping that you'd say like, I'm blasting the new bad bunny album or (laughs) dancing in my seat to some Mark Anthony, but what you were doing was way more important than listening to Spotify. That bunny's in the background. Next time around, I'm going to throw on Maluma because I've okay. been you know, totally in the, the latest album, everything. Um, but, you know, every once in a while, I get to throw in my jams. Last question for you all. This is a segment that we really don't have a name for, but we ask all of our guests this to round out the show. Um, what is one thing or things that you are most obsessed with? Now, this could be related to Puerto Rican culture or not related um, what, uh, what are some things you are both obsessed with? Uh, Jason, let's start with you. Mm. It's going to be a little bit of a cop out, but it's hard not to say my son who I brought up now, just like joining, joining the Moose local school council, you know, which is his, will be his neighborhood school, seeing him develop. And uh, as he tries to understand his like biracial identity, like, I'm obsessed with him because he's in this phase where like Bobby is funny and fun. It's not, I'm not just like second fiddle to mom no more. Like I actually got a role to play. So I'm obsessed with him uh, because he's been a blast. So a little bit of a cop out, but that's, that's my, it's my Puerto Rican and father piece. That's everything. Yeah, that's good. Not a cop out at all. Christina, what about you? Um, you know what? How do you have to say it's your kids? Like I know it's gonna be weird that I set you up. Besides your kids, besides your kids, I'll give you the idea. Besides your kids, what are you obsessed with? 
besides my husband, because he's going to also feel like, you know, left out and all that. And, you know, I've been with the man for 20, almost 25 years. So obviously, oh my I'm goodness. Him. come on. Um, I would have to say, <laughs> I've been lately obsessed with not getting COVID. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, <we> all? <laughs> it's, it's real in the sense, like, it's just, I, I think what I want to you know, really emphasize what's, what's just been so shocking to me is how lax people have gotten about it. And I'm just always super duper paranoid and worried, um, particularly because we, we have some, you know, kind of extenuating circumstances in my household and, you know, knowing what's happening, particularly in communities of color with infection and mortality and all of that. So like, you know, for me, it's about masking up all the time. It's about washing my hands. It's about, you know, at, at, like a couple weeks ago, I I started to, my eyes started tearing, my nose started dripping. And you best believe I was in that, um, that drive-through trying to get my, t- even though I hadn't been anywhere, right? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Maybe when I went, well, I was, I was at a doctor's appointment and I was like, maybe there. Um, So I I feel like I've been incredibly heightenedly aware of, you know, a lot of the basics in public health about, you know, um, making sure that you're just constantly, you know, safeguarding. Um, But that's obviously not a fun thing to be obsessed with. Um, (laughs) But very real. But very, very very, Indeed. Hmm. Curious uh, to hear from you both. You know, if people listening want to keep up with both of you, um, how can they do that? Social media, website, give us all the things. How can people keep up with you both? Um, so I've got, you know, I'm on all the social channels, um, Facebook, you can look up Senator Christina Passione Sias, um, Twitter as well. Um, and I need to update my Insta account. Uh, to make sure that I've got that avenue going as well. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, I just think basically those places, of course, LinkedIn, I mean, it just kind of depends on, you know, what's your preferred social platform. Similarly, like depending on kind of what type of connection you're looking for, Instagram is my like um, current like social, I was late to it. Like I'm like a year in, but it's definitely the place where I'm uh, just talking Puerto Rican culture, fatherhood, living in Humboldt Park. So if that interests you, definitely j.humboldt. Um, and uh, LinkedIn. I also just recently, I know, don't judge me, but like just started to update that uh, with some encouragement of really powerful people of color in my life. Um, so if you're just kind of want to better understand my uh, professional trajectory and, and kind of some of the things I've been up to or I'm a part of, you can find me on there. Jason Donis. Awesome. Illinois State Senator Cristina Pasiones-Zayas, Jason Donez, the Managing Director of Core Member Leadership for Teach for America. Thank you both so much for being on the Paseo podcast today. Thank you, as always, for being you and for creating the platform for Puerto Rican voices. Yeah, same. Really, really just proud of you, proud of the space and happy to have spent the time with you both. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks, y'all. Thanks to Illinois State Senator Cristina Pasiones-Zayas and Managing Director of Corps Member Leadership at Teach for America, Jason Donez, for being on the show today. 
As a reminder, you can watch our interview with them both on our YouTube channel this Monday. Again, just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. Stay tuned next week as we kick off International Women's History Month with our interview with public relations pro and Miserican Daniela Velasquez. Also, if you want to pitch a story, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or share a new story you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, paseomedia.org, to do just that. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.